Our scene opens with chaos, pandemonium. There's panic down every corridor of the royal palace. Folks going everywhere. It looks like a, like a, a beehive that's been hit with a stick. Folks are scurrying around. Anything that's not nailed down, anything of value is being taken up because we know we're going to need that to fund where we're going next, which is exile, which is hiding. It is absolute bedlam in the royal palace. Why? News of Mount Gilboa has just reached the royal palace. Gilboa. It was supposed to be your last stand against your arch enemy, the Philistines. It was going to be when finally King Saul and his army was going to take them down and drive them out of the promised land. Instead, the reverse happened. The Philistines turned out to have a larger army. The Philistines had all the military technology. And word has come back that Saul's first son is dead. Saul's second son is dead. Saul's third son is dead on the field of battle at Mount Gilboa. And the archers have pressed in on Saul. And a few arrows have reached Saul through his armor. He knows he's mortally wounded. So he asks his armor bearer to finish him off and run him, in, run him through with the sword. The armor bearer refuses, so Saul falls on his own sword. And the armor bearer does the same. Now news has come back to the palace. The king is dead. At this point. It's every man for himself. You know what's going to happen next. There's going to be a bloody battle for the throne. Somebody's going to take over the palace. You don't know if it'll be a Philistine. You don't know if it'll be a child of Israel. All you know is you belong to the house of Saul. Therefore, your time is over, and you've got to go into hiding. And sure enough, heading into hiding. In the midst of all the chaos and the panic and the bedlam, the nursemaid sees him there in the corner crying. Barely a preschooler, five years old, crying, looking around, wondering what's going on. Way too young to know that his father and his grandfather are dead on the field of battle. Out of pity, the, the nurse scoops him up. And, 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 and as far as she knows, he may be the last surviving heir to the throne in the house of Saul. And as she scoops him up, she's running as fast as everybody's running. And the crowds are pressing. She runs as fast as she can. But in the chaos, she trips and against the hard ground, the little baby's legs are dashed and his legs are shattered. He'll never walk again. He screams out in pain and agony and has to be carried screaming the whole way into exile. He'll never walk again. He'll live the rest of his life in exile. But at least he's alive. Well, the Philistines celebrate for a time, uh, delighted that they've caused civil war in their arch rival Israel. And while there's a battle for the throne, one of Saul's sons who escaped manages to unite some of the northern kingdoms. And there is a bloody skirmish to take power over the throne. Who will reign in Israel? But in the end, it turns out that little shepherd boy from Bethlehem won the day. And after all this intrigue and bloody battles, the house of Saul has officially given way to the house of David. That's where we find ourselves today. Now, I first heard Pastor Chris Brown out of San Diego dramatize that story, but he didn't, make, he didn't make it up. You can read it for yourself in 2 Samuel. If you'll flash back to 2 Samuel 4, for example, it tells you the story. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet, and it tells you how it happened. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And now we're given the name of this boy. And his name was Mephibosheth. 
The story then shifts focus, and we don't hear about Mephibosheth for 15 years. This son of royalty with such promise, now powerless, broken by a fall, now exiled with no place to truly call home. And, though he, and, and since he's part of the house of Saul, he is an enemy to the reigning king David. And now let's pick up the action in 2 Samuel 9. That's our text for today, 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And we fast forward 15 years from that scene I just described for you. Here we are 15 years later. Mephibosheth has been in hiding, and the story focuses in on King David. David is now safe and secure in his capital city, Jerusalem, and he's thinking, and it hits him. And David said, you just imagine the king pacing around. He's thinking to himself, what's he doing in there? I don't know. He's always writing psalms and he's thinking out loud. He's doing this. And David went, is, is there anyone, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul? And at this point, everybody knows what he's talking about. Come on, it wouldn't take too much imagination. You know what he's talking about. What did ancient kings do? This is nothing surprising. They all assume David is about to do what all the kings of old did. Look, in ancient times, when a new regime, a new dynasty came to power, you better make certain that you eliminate everyone from the old regime, everyone from the old dynasty. Why? Well, you don't want it. Now that you have your throne, you've got to keep your throne. And the way you keep your throne secure is you make sure that there's nobody from the old regime who might want to get, you know, some uh, insurrectionist ideas and get a group of people together and go have a call to arms and claim that they're the rightful heir to the throne. So you've got to make sure you take out all would-be pretenders to the throne. That's what everybody did. As Dale Ralph Davis says, the new king must solidify his position, and it was conventional political policy. Solidification by liquidation. (laughs) Everybody knew it. Everybody believed it. Everybody practiced it. It's just what kings did. It is so utterly taken for granted that when he says this, everybody's like, yeah, we wondered. When was that day? You're going to wipe everybody out. We'll wipe everybody out. That's what makes the next part of this verse so shocking. Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul? that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. What? (laughs) This isn't what kings did. This is so utterly countercultural. People don't know what to do with this. Now, those of us who've been in the Samuel story, we know exactly what this reference to Jonathan is all about. We know way back in the day when Saul was king and David was growing up, Saul loved this little shepherd boy, David, who slew Goliath with a stone and and played the beautiful music on the harp. And David ate at the king's table. And growing up with David was the king's own son, Jonathan. They grew up together and became best friends. And so here he is sitting right next to the king's own son. But Saul began to turn from God and do evil, and he lost his mind, and he started to treat David as an enemy. And so finally the day came after multiple attempts on his life, David realizes he's lost his place at Saul's table. And and honestly, right then and there, speaking of conventional policy, Jonathan probably should have taken David out. Jonathan knew that God had sent for the prophet to anoint David. He knew David was was sort of on the way in and Saul was on the way out. Jonathan would have been the heir to Saul's throne. And so he really should have killed David. Why didn't he? Because he was in line to become the king. He would have been a great king. But here's the deal. Jonathan loved God more than he loved his kingdom. He would give up a kingdom out of love for God and covenant love for David. 
And so he basically gives up his right to the kingdom and he gives them this credible speech and he says, look, you're gonna be the next king. So here's the deal. When you become king, he makes a covenant. Those of you who've been in the series, you remember this. It goes way back, chapters and chapters ago, like way back to like 1 Samuel 20. But you can see the covenant he makes there. He's saying, look, when you become king, let's don't do what kings normally do. Let's don't kill each other's families off. And he makes this covenant. Look, here it is. If I'm still alive, this is what Jonathan said to David. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord, steadfast love, the kindness, the loving kindness, the the relentless love of God that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. The Bible says David loved Jonathan, so his life was spared as David fled from Saul's table, went into hiding. And now after all that's happened, the caves, and you remember the the hiding and the wars, 15 years later, David looks around, and he doesn't think what kings normally think. Who can I wipe out? He looks around, he remembers that covenant promise, and he thinks, you reckon there's anybody left from Jonathan's lineage that I can show kindness to? I'm on a mission of the Hebrew word, and kindness there, um, in, uh, back in verse one, chapter nine, verse one, kindness is, tra- when we translate kindness is okay, but the idea, the Hebrew word hesed, the idea of steadfast love, the never stopping, never quitting, never ending, relentless love of God. The idea of steadfast covenant faithfulness. He's looking around, he goes, I wanna show that to somebody. Now that is so counter to culture, and that's what makes it so beautiful. I know it may not be a main point of this passage, but how can you not? Can I just make that an application point? These covenant promises are so counter to culture that even today they are shocking in their beauty. They are arresting. What do I mean by that? David could have very easily been like, look, I know I, made, I know I said some stuff. I know I made some promises, but that was a long time ago. He didn't say that. Or look, 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 I would be happy to keep my promises that I made to Jonathan, but that would be very costly, so I can't afford to keep that promise. No. Or he could say like, look, look, I kept my side of the deal. I never harmed the house of Saul, and the house of Saul has done nothing but try to harm me. So I'm sorry, covenant off. Y'all broke your end of the bargain. No. Covenant keeping in our world is so beautiful because it's so rare. Uh, Tim Keller has this great insight, I, I think he's right, that we live in a world of disposable relationships. Keller makes a a distinction between the difference between consumer relationships and covenant relationships. He calls consumer relationships retail relationships versus covenant relationships. And here's how it works. In a consumer relationship with a retailer, the, the thinking is basically this. I'll be in relationship with you so long as you're giving me good merchandise at a fair price and good customer service and all that, then we're in relationship. And the minute that stops, I'm out. I'm going to another retailer, right? It is a disposable relationship that is based on me getting my needs met. So in other words, I will sacrifice the relationship to meet my needs. If my needs aren't being met, I'm out. I'll sacrifice the relationship to meet my needs. In a covenant relationship, I will sacrifice my needs to sustain this relationship. What a difference. I'm committed to that relationship. Even if I feel like I'm not getting my needs met right now the way I think they should be met, I'm putting the relationship ahead of that. I am covenant, unconditionally, covenantally committed. Now, disposable relationships. Let me ask you, is being in a retail relationship necessarily a bad thing? No, you should have some disposable relationships. You should have retail relationships. Yo, 
if you can switch cell phone plans and get a cheaper monthly rate for the same amount of service, I don't expect you to be like, well, I could get a lot better deal, but I am covenantly committed to boost mobile. I don't care, right? And you shouldn't either. That's fine. See? Uh, 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 that's okay. In fact, that, that's called a free market economy. That probably helps everybody. That, ma- that makes the first company want to lower their price. And all right, fine. What's well, a problem? And not just Christians point this out, but even secular authors are beginning to notice over the last 20 years is when we treat every relationship as disposable. We treat every relationship as a retail relationship. Hey, I'm putting too much into this relationship on the cost side for the benefit I'm getting out of it, so I'm out. Think about how many of our relationships that should be covenant relationships look a lot more like that. Which is why, which is why, you don't, you don't, even people that aren't Christian admit real, honest, covenant keeping is beautiful. It's beautiful because it's so rare. I'm thinking of a I'm thinking of a couple who got been married many, many, many years, elderly couple, and now he's well advanced in age, very old, and she's got a dreadful disease, let's say a, a Alzheimer's disease, and there he is faithfully being a caregiver, faithfully caring for this woman day in, day out. Why is that old man caring for that woman? Because he's getting his needs met? No. Because 50 years ago, he made a promise in sickness, and in health. And he has no intention of breaking that promise. You don't, have to, you don't have to care about God. You don't have to be a Christian. You look at that and you go, now that's beautiful. That's right. Because most people go, when I'm not getting my needs met, I'm out. Now you will begin to apply that to the covenant relationships in your life. You're smart people. You can figure out the applications. You can think about that. And those of you that are married in your relationship with your spouse. You can think about that in your relationships with your close friends. And I know pastors, it's so, pastors sometimes get on their high horse and they talk about people aren't committed to the church. They're not committed to local church. I'm not going to sit up, look, I'm not going to beat anybody up or make you feel guilty. But that, that, that's not the way to approach this covenant thing. What I want to just ask you to think about is how beautiful and rare a covenant keeping promise is. Ponder with me the covenants that were made right up here as we started the service. Ponder that with me. And think about the way you treat the church. I'm not here to guilt any parent and saying, well, you know, you're not there every Sunday. You're not there every Wednesday. And so you're being a bad parent. You got a lot of things. You're like, here's what I am saying. Parents, grandparents, here's what I am asking you to do. Since we have a baby dedication and you guys are in the front, let me just speak a word, just like I'm having a word, just like I'm having a cup of coffee with you. This is what I want to say to you. I'm not here to make you feel guilty or bad. What I do want you to see is the beauty. Close your eyes and imagine that kid you dedicated, 18 years old, walking across this stage as a graduate. And imagine them with a legacy of faith that has weathered some storms. Imagine them being in the house of God week after week. Not in some retail relationship where, well, as long as it meets my needs, otherwise I'm out. But they have been with God's people. They have worshiped with God's people. And you know when you send them out in the world, they have a legacy of covenant faithfulness that can't be built overnight in a retail relationship. It can only be built Sunday by Wednesday by Sunday by Wednesday for 18 years. And they've got a rock-solid covenant faithfulness upon which to be launched into the world. And tell me that's not beautiful. Tell me that's not a compelling vision for why you pick church when it's so much easier to not go week after week. I'm not here to guilt anybody. I'm saying, look at the beauty. It's shocking and it's rare and the culture is still shocked by it. Really? You guys seem awfully involved in your church because you, oh, I'm sorry. Y'all thought we had a retail thing going. 
we got a covenant thing going with God's people. It's probably not the main point of the passage, but I hope you'll forgive me for saying that has to be brought up. David's covenant faithfulness to Jonathan cost him a lot to keep. And I, I, I make the point because I honestly, I don't think anybody believes David. Look at, look at the next verses. It is so shocking that the old king wants to do kindness to the new king's family that like nobody believes him. So now there was a servant of the house of Saul. Watch. There was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. Now keep your eye on Ziba. He shows up later in 2 Samuel. Ziba is totally sus. So I got my doubts about Ziba. But it, you'll see why later. Ziba's out for Ziba. But nonetheless, Ziba, he, he was the servant in the house of Saul. And you know, like, there's those people in a place like this that always seem to know everybody's business. And you don't know how they know, but they know everything about everybody. Ziba is that kind of person. He's got his hand in everything. So they know if there is a relative of Jonathan, uh, uh, you know, still around, Ziba's going to know. They call Ziba in. I love this. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. You see what he's doing, right? Ziba's no dummy. It's a yes or no question, are you Ziba? But he doesn't answer yes or no. What does he do? He declares allegiance. Are you Ziba? I just want you to know I am 100% David. I am King David. I am Team David. Saul? Saul who? Hate Saul. Not a fan of Saul, <laughs> right? You see what Ziba's doing. Ziba's saying, hey, I need you to know where my loyalties lie. I am completely your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone in the house of Saul? And at this point, you know Ziba's like, there it is. You can imagine Ziba hanging his head. Well, I knew this day would come. And I knew I would have to rat out the location of Jonathan's son, who fled 15 years ago. What was the boy's name? He has a name. And I knew this day would come, but... He's prepared to give up the location of this boy in exile. What he's not prepared for is what the king says next. And the king says, no, no, you didn't let me finish. I want to know if there's somebody in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him. Now he's moved not just from chesed, kindness, to the chesed of God, to the steadfast love of God. I want to show that. And I don't think Ziba believes him. I think he's totally confused. He's like, you, you want to do what to your enemy? You, <clears throat> so he says to the king, and I think it's the only way to explain his answer. Well, there, there is still a son of Jonathan, but like, I, he's crippled in his feet. Now, there's no need to add that detail unless you're Ziba and you don't believe the king. So what he's, what he's effectively saying here is, you, you want to you show kind, I mean, there's a, there's a, yes, there is an heir in the house of Saul, but David, you don't got to worry about him. He's no threat. He's crippled in his feet. He's not going to come march in here and take over the throne. He can't even walk. So I know what you're thinking. And I, I'm a little confused by you, why you keep calling it show kindness. But I think I'm starting to pick up what you're saying. I got you want to show kindness by which you mean execute him. Okay, okay, okay. So I tell you what, David, you don't need to show kindness to him uh, because he's not a threat to you. So he can't walk. It's okay. Let it go. I love this. David doesn't say, well, tell me more about his condition. Or, well, I didn't know about that. Let me think that through. No, when David hears all he needs to hear, you had me, there's still a family member left. David's only question is, where is he? King said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, well, he's, he's been in hiding, your highness. <laughs> he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. He's been hiding from you. He's been in exile. Now, he's been in this town 
Lodabar. Lodabar. Y'all, I, I've got... M- I have consulted multiple Bible dictionaries, and there is a range of meanings for Lodabar, but none of them are good. You do not want to be in Lodabar. One Bible dictionary says Lodabar means no pasture or without pasture. Others argue for a range of meanings, from no bread, one is no word, or my my favorite translation, nothing. You don't want to be in Lodabar. Ain't nothing down in, let's go to Lodabar, Texas. It's a totally different, nobody went there. You don't want to be in Lodabar. No pasture. Like, no, no, sorry, no pasture. No place to grow. Not no pasture. You might enjoy that. It's no pasture. Lodabar. Place of exile. Place where nothing grows. A nothing town. Lodabar. Their city motto was Lodabar, as in lowered the bar of expectations because there's nothing here, so don't get your hopes up. Let me ask you something. Why would you live in Lodabar? Hmm? I'll tell you why. You wouldn't choose to live there. You would live in Lodabar because it is a place of exile. That's why. It is a place of hiding. You go to Lodabar when you do not want to be discovered by the king. When you are in exile, when you are helpless, and when you are an enemy of the current king, you will find yourself in a nowhere place that means no pasture. So, can you imagine? When the king's motorcade of limousines pulls up in Lodabar, whoo, it's all they could talk about. (laughs) All six of them. They could not get over that. Can you imagine? Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Now, what's going on? What's going through everybody's mind? What's going through the mind of this son of Jonathan? His faithful nurse was, you can imagine, there's, there's Mephibosheth and his faithful nurse. As the limousines pull up, and there's no question, they all got Jerusalem license plates, and they know where it's going. It's, it's King David, is obviously, that day has come. And the, here's the thing, everybody knew it was going to come. And there the nurse hangs her head. We knew this day would come. We're so sorry. We hid you for as long as we could. We were even willing to live in a place like Lodabar, eke out this existence. And I'm sorry. We hid you for as long as we could, but we couldn't keep you safe forever. And in verse 6, we're given the boy's name. By now, he's 21 years old. He's brought before the king. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. Boy, boy, they're really taking their time with this, aren't they? They're driving home how much of the enemy camp he's a part of. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. We're all like, we all know that's the son of Saul. They're like, the son of Saul. We know. Came to David. And fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, where have we heard this before? Behold, I am your servant. Now it's pretty obvious to me that when Mephibosheth is groveling on the ground and hears his name. Can you imagine? He assumes, I I am your servant. This will be the last words I ever speak. So he's there, he's groveling on the ground and he hears David say, Can I call you Fib? Here's, when he says, behold, I am your servant. Listen, Mephibosheth knows these are the last words he will ever speak. Now let me ask you, why does nobody believe David that he wants to show kindness? (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, you want to show kindness. Why? Why is it? He even says, I want to show you the kindness of God. Can I press a little further? How come when you preachers preach about the kindness of God? I don't believe it. Could it be because 
quite frankly, Mephibosheth thinks exactly like we think. Yeah, but you don't understand my situation. Look at me. If you really knew me, I can't walk. I have nothing to offer the king. I've been in exile. I've been living in Lodabar. And all my life, I've, ho- I've heard stories. And not for nothing, since you brought it up, all my life, I've been sitting around Lodabar. And you know what we talk about? We talk about how things aren't really fair. Because you know what? I'm the king's grandson. I'm the heir to the throne. We should be sitting in a palace right now. Instead, we're in Lodabar. And you know who to blame? You, know who to, you could say, oh, it's the Philistines' fault. Is it, though? Would, it, would we be here if it were not for David? Tell me it wasn't David that started all this. So I just got just a little bit of resentment that's been brewing for the last 15 years in Lodabar. Every time I look at my legs and realize I can't walk because we were booted out of the palace, ultimately, I think, because of David. So you got a little bit of resentment toward David and a little bit of anger. And they're not quite sure then when David talks about kindness and steadfast love, you'll forgive me if I'm a little skeptical. Or maybe maybe the, the kindness of God is for David's people. And I could never really fit in as David's people. You know, I'm Saul's people. So maybe that kindness is for the David types, but not the Saul's type. Does any of this sound familiar when we approach God? Do you not know people when you talk about the kindness of God? Yeah, well, for some people. You don't know about me. Ah, no thanks. I'm not me. And I got just a little bit of resentment. And when you come to God or when you are faced with religion or you meet God's people, isn't it true? Like the old joke about the little boy comes to church. And he didn't understand everything that was going on, but he would gauge his theology based on when the preacher would get all fired up. And he'd leave and he'd tell his mom, whew, looks like God was angry again this week. <laughs> Isn't that what we think? God's angry. He's angry. Maybe when we come before God, we would assume he wants nothing to do with us. I mean, he wants the good boys and girls, but not us. We hear these hints of chesed and loving kindness and steadfast love. We just don't, we just don't believe it. A few years ago, uh, before COVID, I had the privilege of seeing uh, Chris Tomlin's Christmas concert show down in Birmingham. Some of you have been, some of you have seen it. He puts on a wonderful concert. In the middle of it, uh, of, of course, it's such a preacher thing to forget the music and listen to the prose. So when he like tells the story, um, but he tells this incredible story that's always stuck with me. He talks about, you know, he's from Texas, and he talks about how in his neighborhood growing up, there was one house down there in his neighborhood, uh, not far not far drive down, uh, that was, when it comes to Christmas, can I just describe? It was that house. You know what I'm talking about with the Christmas decorations, right? Think Griswold, okay? Like that house, the one that like, and each year would get bigger and bigger, and they would, it became like a family tradition. They would load the kids up in the station wagon, and they would drive the short drive in the cold night. They'd get hot chocolate, and they'd go, and that was like their thing. They would go and look at their neighbor's house, and it, each year would get bigger and bigger and more elaborate than their sound systems, you know? And then there's light, and then you could see the thing from space if you go on Google Earth, you know what I'm talking about, right? So it gets bigger and bigger. And finally, Tomlin by now is like, he's, he's, I think he's in college and he's coming home and they still do it. So it's a Friday night. Christmas is the next week. It's their tradition. They get in the station wagon and each year they're complaining because the traffic's getting bigger and bigger. Word is getting out. Now people are backed up. Cars are backed up. And the dad is just getting angrier and angrier because he was there when it was, you know, just one little, you could just walk up anytime. And now this, and he's getting madder and madder. And as he sees, he's like 20 cars deep and everybody's waiting to pull up next to this house. And he loses his mind when he sees 20 cars away. He sees them as cars are pulling up, ask him to roll down the window and they're sticking the bucket in the car. And the dad's like, are you kidding me? And that can't just do a good deed. Now we got to make money. Now we got to profit off this. 
and he's just getting madder and madder. Tomlin tells the story that him and his brothers are hiding in the back of the station wagon, covering up with blankets because they don't want to be associated with what's about to, the guy's going to explode. And as he's getting closer, they're using little kids. That's dirty, right? At Christmas time, they're using little kids, you know, to, to take the collection, stick the bucket in each. And they're like, Dad, whatever happens, please do not roll up the window and crush your kid's arm. Like, we do not want to get sued at Christmas time, right? And he's getting angrier and angrier. And just about the time he's about to explode, he finally pulls up. Forget the Christmas spirit. Forget the house. He can't believe they're charging money for this. As soon as he gets up there, the kid runs up with a bucket. It's full of candy canes. He goes, here, take one. They're free. Take as many as you want. Filled with anger and fear, we get madder and madder at a God we think is out to take. And that little baby, born in a manger, born in Bethlehem, was God's way of saying once for all and forever, God is not trying to take something from you. He's trying to get something to you. Some of you just assume God is angry at you. Some of you, it's been a long time since you darkened the doors of a church, perhaps, and you assume, well, I don't know what I'm... Do you realize God is not trying to take? He's trying to get something to you. And, and, and just like the King David had to go and seek Mephibosheth, he wasn't going to wait around for somebody to come from Lodabar. They're in hiding. They don't want to be found by the king. I heard, I, you know, I, was, I, was, I Googled Lodabar because I thought that can't be what that means, right? So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm messing around. And I see these sermons, you got to get up out of Lodabar. I'm like, that's the point. You can't get up out of Lodabar. If you're Mephibosheth, you are very much stuck in Lodabar. So you're in exile, you're in hiding, and you don't want to be found by the king. And even if you could be found by the king, you can't walk. You can't make your way to Jerusalem. So the good king has to go out after lost Mephibosheth. And he goes, and just like Jesus tells that story about the shepherd who picks up that lost sheep and brings him home. In the same way, Jesus said, the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So he gets this Mephibosheth, and oh, when he calls his name, Mephibosheth, when he calls his name. Have you heard the king call your name? It's been a long time. You got to hear that in your life. You got to hear the king call your name. I, I, I don't mean literally with an audible voice. I mean, you have to have this encounter with God where you, it is revealed to you that salvation is found in Jesus Christ and he wants a relationship with you. Well, when he calls his name, David had to say the same thing to Mephibosheth that seems like when God does something in a person's life, he has to say this everywhere. Jesus had to say it over and over again. The angels had to say it when they announced Jesus' birth, and David had to say it to Mephibosheth. David said to him, do not fear. Isn't that something? Always having to tell people, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Do not fear. Mephibosheth thinks, yeah, easy for you to say, but you don't know me. Do not fear. You aren't going to want anything to do with me. Do not fear. Fear. I've dreaded the day we would meet. Do not fear. Yeah, easy for you to say you have all the power and I am weak and I'm your enemy and I've got a few resentments. And honestly, if the roles were reversed, I know what I would do to you. I would nail you to a cross. Talk to me about do not fear. So just make it quick, you know, use a sharp blade, get it over with quickly, cut my head off or whatever it is you kings do to eliminate revivals, rivals, just do it quickly. And David says, do not fear, for I will show you kindness. This is a promise of protection. David is saying, oh, Mephibosheth, you got to know, 
when I look at you, you know who you look like. Mephibosheth's 21 years old at this point. You look just like your daddy, Jonathan. You look just like my friend. So this kindness that you're experiencing has nothing to do with your worth or what you did or didn't do. You've got to understand something, young man. This goes way bigger than you. And in fact, it was put in motion long before you ever got here. Let me say that again. You are the recipient of covenant love that was set into motion long before you were born. I'm going to say it a third time. You are the recipient of covenant love that was set into motion long before you were even born. Now, just a little insert. It's just this big. I just made myself two notes. Insert. How was David able to love like this? How was David able to get this loving kindness? He tells you, it's for the sake of your father, Jonathan. What does that mean? He's saying, David, <clears throat> you, I, mean, I mean, Mephibosheth, you may not know this, but you, you, you're, I don't know what they've told you about your dad and your granddad, but Jonathan should have killed me. Instead, he gave up his kingdom for me. So what happened was, I, when I was a dead dog, you can go back and look in the first part of what we call Samuel. We call it 1 Samuel now. I, I, I was a dead dog to Saul. And when I had nothing to offer, your dad, Jonathan, made a covenant promise to me. And he essentially gave up his kingdom so that I could be here today. So it cost him his kingdom. And because I've received that kind of covenant love, I can show covenant love and mercy to others. Guys, that's New Testament Christianity. Because we have received the covenant love of God, we can show the covenant love of God to others. Can't, can, I mean, if we can jump ahead here to the New Testament, can't you see how Jesus is the true and better Jonathan? Jonathan gave up his kingdom so that David could be here. Jesus gave up not only his kingdom, but his whole life so that you could live. So because you've experienced that covenant love and faithfulness, you can freely give it to those who don't deserve it, like Mephibosheth. Well, <clears throat> we've got to bring this to a close, and we're just going to, unpack the rest of this verse here. I, you, you know, I'm gonna show you kindness. That's a promise of protection and we're just getting started. And the rest, I'm gonna restore. I will, re and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. All that was taken from you in the fall. Think about all that was lost. Your father had a right to this land. It was lost in the fall. And now, instead of being planted in a good land, you're over here in Lodabar, no pasture. Well, I'm going to restore all that. And probably the best way to preach this is not to go on and on about it, but just to ask you in your heart, can you testify to that? Not fully. There will be a full restoration in the new heaven, new earth. But can you already see, those of you who are blood-bought children of God, can you already see how God has begun to restore all that the enemy wanted to take? I've seen him restore. I've seen him give people their life back, their freedom back, marriages, friendships restored, relationships, dreams they thought were shattered. This grace is in the business of restoring. I will restore. And at this point, at this point, Mephibosheth is like, he's, this is a once in a lifetime gift. And I, David, I will not mess this up. Thank you so much. He's probably thinking, so you, you've given me my life. That first promise, I will show kindness. Do not fear, I'll show kindness. So I've got protection. And now I've not only got protection, but I've got like independent wealth. You're giving me all that land back. A land was identity, a place in the promised land, writing me back into the covenant promises of God. And you can read in a few verses, he's gonna assign Ziba with all his staff to work the land. So he's basically been given an annuity. 
He's been given all this money, this, this income that's gonna flow in. And he's thinking, this is incredible. I've, I've got my life back. I've got income. Oh, King David, I, th- this is amazing. I'll just be on my way. I'll, I'll be back to Lodabar, but wow, things are totally different. And I, you know, I, you've told me a little bit about Jonathan. Of course, I, I never had a father. That all died. He all died when I was five. And so I've, I've always wanted to live in the, the palace. I've always wanted to understand what that's like. But, 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 but like, maybe we could write letters. You know, David, like maybe we could be like pen pals and like maybe, maybe through Ziba, I'll send a letter and then you could have Ziba write your response back. And there's no hurry. You don't have to. I know you're busy. You're the king. But like whenever you could, I would love to know more about Jonathan. I'd love to know more about Saul. And I'd love to know how on earth you became the king. You had this heart of kindness that you're going to protect me. And you're, I, I, I just can't believe it. I'll be on my way whenever the limousines are ready. Obviously, they're your limousines. So I'm on your schedule. Uh, this is more than I could hope for. This is amazing. I'm overwhelmed. Thank you. And that's when David drops the ultimate. And you shall eat at my table always. I'm sorry, what? Eat at my table means adoption into the king's family. (laughs) Mephibosheth, who longs to be in a family, is so thankful. And he's thinking, well, I've had a lovely time here in your palace, but all good things must come to an end. I guess I got to head home. And David says, you are home. This is now your home. You can eat at my table. You'll see in a verse, I think it's verse 11, my table with the king's son. You're going to eat as one of my own. Now you got these promises, but now this is security, a place in the family. At this point, Mephibosheth's circuits are overloaded and he just loses it. Verse 8, and he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? At that point, David probably laughed, dead dog, because that's exactly what he called himself back when he was shown all this grace. It's funny you use that phrase, Mephibosheth. When I didn't have a prayer, I was the recipient of covenant love. I even, wrote a ta- I even wrote a song about it. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So that's it. In a moment, Mephibosheth goes from being a helpless, homeless enemy to being a child of the king. Now, I mean, how? How, as a New Testament Christian, how can you not see yourself in Mephibosheth's story? Let me say it again. Mephibosheth, here you got a guy, born rightful heir to a throne of royal blood, broken by the fall, living in exile somewhere he was never supposed to be, an enemy to the king on the throne. Let's review. He was helpless, powerless, weak, couldn't walk. He was estranged, exile, sinner, separated, And he was of the wrong house. He was an enemy. Helpless, sinner, enemy. Weak, sinner, enemy. I can't prove it. I'll never be able to prove it. But I think that when the apostle Paul wrote Romans chapter 5, he gets to this one paragraph, verses uh, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And when he gets to those verses, I can't prove it, but I think he was illustrating this story of Mephibosheth. Because you got this weak, powerless person Christ died for. And this sinner and this enemy, and here's what, here's what Paul writes in Romans 5. Yeah, but well, what about those of us who are powerless, those of us who are weak, who have nothing to offer? Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, okay, but what if it's worse than just weak? What if I've actually sinned against God? What if I'm living in Lodabar and I'm in exile? What does God have to say about that? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. While we were still sinners, verse 8, 
Christ died for us. Well, okay, but what if it's not just that I'm weak and it's not just that I'm sinful, but what if I'm actively hostile toward God? What if I'm an enemy of God and under the wrath of God? Paul says, well, it's funny you bring that up. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. His answer to all these objections is the cross of Calvary. Well, Brandon's going to come and lead us in a time of response, a time of invitation. You know, these verses, what an, what an incredible way to end. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And then has this really unusual conclusion. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. I want you to think long and hard about why the story would end with this verse. It's interesting the way it ends the way it does. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. Okay, so it's emphasizing no longer in uh, Lodabar. We're now in Jerusalem. For he ate always at the king's table. That's like the third, I think the third time it's emphasized. He's eating at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. And it's the third time the text emphasizes lame in both feet. Why, Why would you bring that up? Doesn't that seem like a really odd way to end this amazing story? You would never do that in, modern, in a modern telling of this. You would never end Mephibosheth. The guy's name meant shame. Oh, and by the way, uh, probably referred to this terrible tragedy he had. And that's where it ends. I wonder if in this verse, it's here for our instruction. Because latent in this verse, to me, I see it, is the gospel. It's, it's, it's more. The gospel's more. See, see, to, to the people who would say, I'm not very sinful, I don't need the good news of the gospel, oh, I think you're more wicked than you're giving yourself credit for. And to those who would say, but God's love only goes so far, I would want to say, oh, it's more. And that's what you see here in this passage. He was lame in both his feet is a reminder that we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with these things that we would say, this is not Okay. And I think it's, it's a reminder to, to those who think that they get to the king's table because they're like Absalom. Ooh, now there's a king's son. There's King David's son for you with the, the, the in, 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 impossible good looks and handsome Absalom sits down. And then maybe Solomon walks in. Maybe you got to the king's table not because of your looks. Maybe you got to the king's table because of your wisdom. Ooh. And there David's son Solomon, he comes, sits at the table. He's so wise, of course, he'd get a place at the table. Or maybe you're like Tamar with all, with all her beauty. Or, or maybe you're like Joab, one of David's mighty men. You come in from the dust of battle and you've got all these stories of courage and heroism and bravery. And if you think you sauntered up to the kingdom of God, if you think you're here because God is lucky to have you on his team, if you think you're here because, of course, I have a place at the table. I was born in a good family and I was raised and I've lived a good moral life and I never cheated on anybody. So, of course, I deserve a place at the table. Look at that verse and look at the truth. You were carried to this table. The gospel's more. The gospel will not allow us to lie to ourselves and say, you're talking about the mask you put up in front of other people. I'm talking about the lame in both feet. I'm talking about the stuff nobody sees. We're all Mephibosheth. But here's the best part. But to anybody who would say, but that invitation is not available for me I would say that's not up to you he ate at the king's table and if it's the king's table then the king can invite whomever he wants and he has put you in the crosshairs of the target of his steadfast love when he stretched out his arms he died for you on Calvary's cross carry me to that table you are loved to the sky. And when you sit at the table, wouldn't that be fun to look around that table 
when you sit at the table, you know what the best part about sitting at the king's table is? Whether you're Absalom or you're Tamar or you're Joab or you're Solomon or you're Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth's shameness was covered when he was at the table. See, God's tablecloth of grace covers all that shame. Everybody looks the same when you're at that table. The, the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level ground. Nobody can pull rank and say they earned a right to be here. God can save even Mephibosheth. He can save even me. And there is coming a great banqueting table. Y'all, for everyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus, for everyone who said, I, carry me to that table. Just carry me to that table. I'm not, I got no more pride. I got, no, no, no. I just need Jesus. He carries you to that table. And at that banqueting table, there with the saints of old and there in glory, there will be a great marriage supper and the tablecloth will cover of his grace will cover everybody's sin and shame. And we will look around that table and we'll see Mephibosheth, even you. And he'll look at me and be like, even you, even me to that table let's pray God I ask that you would grant fresh faith to those who uh, still think that maybe you're trying to take from them show them today you're trying to get something to them don't let them doubt your goodness let them see you and your goodness in a new way shining like a diamond from 2 Samuel chapter 9 a hidden gem the Old Testament of your unrelenting grace. Reveal that to us in a new way. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have a time of invitation. That's all that is, invitation. It's not a manipulation. It's not a coercion. I'll tell you this. The only thing that Mephibosheth, he could have missed out on, would be if he said, I don't really believe David is as good as he says. I'm going to stay right here in Lodabar. The only thing that would keep a sinner from finding that grace would be to say, I just don't believe God is as good as he says he is. And I'm here to tell you, God is as good as he says he is.